Oh dear. Hey guys, and welcome to the Coffee and Coding Podcast, the show where we discuss everything there is to know about app development. I'm your host, Rob J, and in this episode, I speak with Jonathan Cutrell, host of the Developer Tea Podcast and currently the engineering manager at PBS. We talk about the Developer Tea Podcast, obviously, long-term thinking, the why behind the things we do as developers, remote working and how to do it well, the psychology of working remotely, how job titles and development are all made up, and much, much more. Now on to the show. Before we get into today's conversation, I wanted to float an idea with you, the listener, and I would love to know what you think about this. So I've been thinking for a while about doing some solo episodes where I talk about topics related to my experience. So for example, for those of you that don't know this about me, I've been an app developer since 2012 and I have only ever done freelance work. I have never had a permanent position as a mobile app developer. And I've realized through doing the podcast that a lot of people kind of find freelancing to be this black box and this kind of mysterious thing that they don't really understand why people do it or how to get into it. And over the years, I've had a lot of interesting conversations with permanent staff about why they don't want to go freelance and freelancers about why they never go permanent. And so I was thinking for my first solo episode, I could dig into this topic and kind of give what I would try to be an objective overview of both the pros and cons of freelancing versus permanent work and how how those two things differ and kind of my perspective and experience on it. So my question for you is, is that something you'd be interested in? So if you'd like to hear that, or if you have any other topics you'd like me to talk about, or if you'd like to tell me to please not do that and no, you don't want to listen to me talk for 20 or 30 minutes by myself, then that is absolutely fine as well. Hit me on Twitter at LowCarbRob or hit me in the Slack community. I'm going to post a question there as well. So if you're not already in the Slack community, that is coffeeencodingpod.com forward slash Slack. Now onto the show. So I'm going to assume that you haven't listened to the show because you're a busy man and it's a very new show. (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. Um, No, unfortunately I've not, but I'd love to hear kind of a synopsis of what the audience is and Kind of what they're, what is the question that they're trying to answer by listening to your podcast? Okay. Oh, you've, you've stumped me with the first question. I'm supposed to ask you. <laughs> um, so the audience is the, well, the, the podcast is aimed at app developers, which is what I am. And that's the, the topic that I was interested in. So, and it kind of started off as like, you know, I'm going to interview just app developers and they talk about, you know, techie stuff. And then it's kind of evolved into everything around app development, but it doesn't have to specifically be app development. So I interviewed, um, a guy on cybersecurity, which was super interesting. And I've had the recruiter on talking about you know the whole process of getting hired the last episode that i did was uh with a guy who does sales and marketing not related to app development but he had like so much knowledge about sales and marketing that so it's basically that that's the target audience but the subject is anything that i guess it's anything that i would find interesting and i hope other people would also find interesting if that's if that makes sense yeah absolutely i i have a similar uh, kind of um i guess broad topic uh selection on the whatever 900 episodes of developer t i've done so uh that that makes total sense to me 900 is a lot it is a lot it is a lot (laughs) it's it's almost too much uh to really remember everything that we've talked about over the long period of time that we've been doing it but 
Yeah. So then to get started, I've been listening to Developer T since I started this podcast. And long story short, because I've kind of explained the story behind this podcast already, is I started the podcast because I couldn't find what I was looking for. So I was like, all right, cool. I'm going to start my own. And then of course you start your own and you realize, you know, there's 15 other really good developer podcasts that you just never found before. And one of them was Developer T. And so for people that are listening that don't know the developer T, the developer T podcast, oh, I feel like I'm going to get tongue twisted this whole time saying it. <laughs> they should definitely go and check it out because I've definitely got a lot from it and I find it super interesting. So I definitely want to touch on that. But before we get to that, for people that haven't listened or for people that don't know who you are, can you give just a brief synopsis of who you are and what you do? And then we'll kind of jump into like career stuff and go from there. Sure. Yeah. My name is Jonathan Cottrell. And, um, you know, probably the most relevant fact about me is that I, I am the host of another podcast called Developer T um, that's been around for something like five years now. And the, the whole goal of that show was mostly for people like me uh, who had really short commutes. My commute was like five minutes, 10 minutes into the office at the time. And so doing long podcasts just didn't fit my day, right? And there were a lot of really good longer form podcasts, but I wanted to do something that was really tightly focused on, you know, one topic per episode. Maybe we have a couple of things where we would talk like one or two points, but nothing really super long form, not a lot of commentary, that kind of thing. And so that grew into what developer T is today, which is you know, not heavily tech focused, by the way. It's something that's probably, in hindsight, calling it developer T probably cuts out a, a pretty large number of people who otherwise would enjoy the show um, because it is highly relevant outside of, of software engineering. But it's I, I try to push things towards specific software engineering discussions, things that are really particularly relevant to software engineers, even though it's not necessarily oh, there's a new version of whatever. That, that's not the kind of thing we would talk about on the show. But beyond the podcast, um, I actually work at, I, I'm a director of technology at PBS today. I used to work at some startups in the past and I helped start a, a digital design and development agency. I was there, I, I wasn't a founder, but I was very early, uh, early employee there. You were CTO, is that right? That's right. Yes. Uh, so, so I was, I had the title of CTO. Of course, when a company is small enough, you can kind of grab the C titles as you'd like <laughs> to, but, um, but it was a very meaningful experience, very important part of my career. And I, I learned probably more in that role than any other role since then. And I'm just, you know, obviously I'm very grateful for the path that I've taken, but, you know, I didn't set out originally in my career thinking, oh, you know, in 10 or 15 years, I want to end up in this high, you know, leadership role in an engineering organization at a big company. That that wasn't really my goal necessarily. In fact, actually, I used to want to be a, a musician. Um, you can see in the video that we have on the screen right now, you can see the instruments behind me. And it looks like you're in a recording studio for people that are listening. <laughs> we actually just built our, our new home and we have this room that's kind of dedicated to uh, all things audio, basically. So uh, recording the podcast, but also um, yeah, studio kinds of things. So, so that was kind of my background. And, and I, I just had this very broad range of interests. Now I actually have my pilot's license and, you know, being a host of a podcast and, 
you know, also doing my day job and I have two children and it's very full and um, a lot of variety in my life these days. Cool. I think that is a, a very good overview and that's a bunch of stuff to dig into. So I guess oh, there's, so, there's so many things I'm trying to I'm trying to structure it in a way in my mind that makes sense. <laughs> um, and also, if you hear noise, it's because I have a puppy that's running around and I'm desperately trying to not tell her off for <laughs> chewing something she's not supposed to. That's all right. No, she's good. So I guess kind of where I want to start is because I because I so all right. So the first place that I want to start is I was looking at your website today because for these podcasts I do I know there's people that do a ton of research and I do very little research because all I want is topics and then I want to have like a natural discussion. So I went on your website and it was by far the best developer website that I've ever been on. So you know definitely kudos for that. Ooh, you've disappeared. Was that me? Did I go or did you go? Oh, I did not go. Okay, so, all right, I think my internet just, yeah. I love technology podcasts because it just goes to show you that none of us know what we're doing. Yeah, we're sitting here staring at the screen. I had no idea what happened. I didn't know how to fix it. I'm- <laughs> <laughs> it's just it, but it's the, it's the old story. How do you fix it? I'll just refresh, yeah. turn it off yeah, and exactly. on again. It works. Perfect. Exactly. So I was saying that I do a little bit of research, and so I went on your website, and it was by far the best developer website that I've seen. Oh, that's so kind. Thank you. Yeah, well, they're normally either one of two things, right? Which is like one page portfolio and, you know, just a couple of links or it's a whole mess of, oh my God, this is everything I can do on a website. Um, (laughs) And this was really like nicely structured and all that kind of stuff. So it was really cool. And so just, so I guess from there, it took me to LinkedIn and then on your LinkedIn, it was like, I think it was 2011, you were a web, like front end web developer. Mm -hmm. What was the journey like? from front-end web developer to where you are today and kind of up to the point where, so I don't know if you started developer T and then, you know, that's where you started having these interesting thoughts and perspectives on things, or if you had these things before that. And then at some point you was like, I just want to record them. So whichever one of those came first, kind of, can you walk us through being front-end web dev up to that point? Absolutely. Yeah. So you know, it's interesting you ask, you know, did you have these thoughts before? I actually uh, thought about kickstarting a totally different podcast a couple years before I started Developer T. Uh, and, and that podcast was going to be called, uh, I think it was End to End. The idea of being like front-end developers and back-end developers and trying to kind of bring together the the mindset and this was early on so uh it's not so much of a uh a reasonable to- uh i don't know topic or premise today as it was then but you know that was it, these ideas of i guess stepping back and looking at a meta level right uh, looking at how how do we work not you know, what are we, you know, what are we doing per se? What, like, what are the tactics that we're using? But rather, what are the theories that drive the tactics that we're using? That's been on my mind probably since around 2013. So backing up into 2011, you know, I, I joined a company that was very young. The front end developers that were there had, they were totally self taught and so was I, but I had the benefit of having this incredible internship at a company that was based here in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And the internship stretched me. It it kind of forced me to learn a, a much more kind of. I won't say proper, but a more advanced or modern way of, of dealing with things. For example, when I joined the company, they weren't using version control, and that was something that I could bring to the table. And so uh, that stark difference between my experience at the internship and my experience with technology and what I was re- uh, kind of recognizing in the company, I realized, hey, wait a second, we could really improve 
what we're doing by taking a step back and looking at what are some better ways. And so I realized, okay, you know, it's not just tactics though, right? We need to take a step back and evaluate why, why should we, because here's the interesting kind of pushback that I got was every time we would make a suggestion, which felt obvious to me, someone would ask me why, why should we do version control? And answering that question was formative for me because it, it forced me to say, do I really know? Do I really know why this is a good idea? And if I can't answer that question, then am I just following, you know, the herd in a way, right? It's convention, right? Exactly, exactly. And there's some value in convention. For example, there's some value in choosing a popular language because, you know, there's, there's, there's just some value in having a community of people and uh, there's probably a, a critical mass of of uh, projects, open source projects that are written in that language, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not a bad idea to consider convention when you're trying to make decisions about what should you do, but there's also some principles to learn. And I, I felt like I was developing those principles by being in this kind of leadership position, trying to grow the company, but also developing or establishing those engineering practices. So in 2013 to 2015, I was actually doing that and then finally I said, you know what? I'm going to start this podcast. And that was in 2015. And from there, it just kind of took off in my head, right? I, I was able to just actually think about these thoughts and record them and formalize them in some way. And that really opened things up for me. That's, that's really interesting. Okay. So, so you started the podcast because you were having these thoughts, right? And what I'm really interested in is, so like when I listen to the podcast, it makes sense. And they're probably thoughts that I've like uh, not all of them, obviously, but there's sometimes you say things and I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. That's how I think about it. But I've never really stopped to be like, oh, that's how I think about it. It's just this autopilot, which is like, yeah, this is normal. This is how I think about it. But it's not like a formalized thought in my head. So I guess my question is kind of how how do you approach, how did you approach it before? And, and I guess for the developer T podcast, it makes sense as well, is how do you approach it? And is it a sense of, you know, you just happen to be thinking about something and you're like, all right, this is what I'm going to record. Or do you have to sit down and be like kind of breaking down things and then trying to formalize those thoughts, I guess, because I would not know where to start. Even even simple things where, so I'm an Android developer and even, even simple things, which would be like, um, I thought about, you know, I'll start a YouTube channel and I'll talk about Android development experience, but I would have no idea where to start. There wouldn't be no structure and it would be the same as you where it's like, if somebody asked me, why do you do that? The answer is because I know, I know it's the right thing to do, but I don't, I, like I've never stopped to think why. And somebody actually asked me a question at work today and they were like, why do you want to do that? And I was like, I don't, I, I got stumped and I know, I know it's right. The answer is just because I want to do it, but there's, there's a reason. So how do you kind of formalize those thoughts and how do you pick and choose what it is that you're going to talk about? Yeah, that's a really excellent question because there's a couple of answers. Uh, there's no single way that this happens. Sometimes I stand and stare at my computer and I have no idea what I'm going to talk about. Other times I'll have an experience. I'll have a work experience, something that uh, thematically keeps on coming up at work. And, you know, thinking through those experiences, I might have some particular point of insight. A lot of the time, what ends up happening is I'll come up with some kind of like seed of an idea, right? Um, and this, this can happen very, very often. Um, my wife knows this. It happens in the shower for me. I'll go and exercise. I'll take a shower and I'm sitting there thinking. And as the water's running, I'm like, got it. You know, like I suddenly know what I'm going to talk about. As an example, uh, the other night I was, I was talking about, or I was thinking about 
our relationship with complexity, right? And this is based off of some things that I was talking through and thinking about at work and some books I was reading and thinking about how developers are constantly told to make things less complex, right? Simplify, simplify. But then I started thinking, okay, sometimes complexity or, or sometimes our use of complexity is important. We need complexity. If we just always simplified things, well, complexity, the things that are actually complex wouldn't be served, right? So we want to simplify things that should be simplified. And I came up with like in this line of thinking, I ended up at this location of complexity as a resource, as if it was like dollars in your, in your wallet kind of thing, right? Spending your complexity on things that would deserve it. And so that idea or that phrase, complexity as a resource, then I decided, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do an episode about this, right? And try to develop some kind of framework of thought after I get to that point where it's, I want to say the phrase complexity as a resource at some point during this episode, what can I wrap around it? That makes sense. That's a, a way of thinking, you know, mental model, that kind of thing. And that's, that's 90% of my episodes are done that way. Um, there's some kind of model or point and then wrapping around what I believe to be something true about that point uh, and how it plays out practically in our work. So then do you not ever get, I don't, I, I'm trying to think how to word it. So do you not ever get kind of stumped of, I guess the first question is in terms of the podcast, is there like a, a set schedule or is it as and when you have things to talk about? Yeah, there is a set schedule. So we used to do three a week, which is a lot. Uh, now we do two a week. And yes, the answer is I, I have gotten stumped. I've, I've sat, like I said, just staring at the screen for you know a long time. And what I learned early on, so I, I had this episode that I, that I came up with very quickly. I recorded it quickly. I felt very self-conscious about it. I didn't think it was a good episode. And I released it. And somebody sent me a message about this episode and they were just, for whatever reason, it, it was very helpful to them. I don't remember exactly which episode. There's like 900 of them. So <laughs> who knows which one? Uh, but I remember thinking their perception of this episode is vastly, wildly different than mine. And so my self-perception or my self-judgment of this content that I'm thinking through uh, is not just harsher, but also has a completely different character and perception than someone else. And so I need to kind of let go of the reins a little bit. And instead of, you know, just doing something until I'm happy with it, I need to think through an idea and say, is it valid, right? Is it, you know, is what I'm saying, is it going to hurt anybody? That would be a disqualifier, right? But is, is it a valid idea? And once I got to that place, I could let go a little bit of the control and instead focus on, you know, serving those episodes to the people who need them, even though not necessarily am I going to find it, you know, to be my best episode ever, right? I certainly don't think that every episode is better than the last. <laughs> it doesn't work out that way. But it's a, it's a subjective thing, right? Because whatever exactly. is your favorite episode is going to be somebody else's. Like they, they forget about that one. And then whatever is the one that you just throw out there, they're like, oh my God, this made a big difference for me. Yes. Yes. And, and sometimes it's the ones like in that story that you just never would expect. 
you never would expect. And this is actually, you know, I guess conceptually, the same thing can happen to an engineer in a meeting. And I've, I've experienced this personally a lot. You have an idea, you have a question, let's say, and you have this internal monologue going on because somebody says something, you've got a question about what they've said. Now you have to decide, am I going to service this question? Right? Am I, am I going to actually say it? And a lot of people, most of the time, will avoid asking the question because they think, oh, well, everybody's going to think, everybody else already knows the answer to that. Nobody's right? asked the question, so they must know. Yeah, right. exactly. I, I'm obviously the only one who could think this way. But the truth is, you almost certainly are not the only one who's having that question. Uh, this is one of the benefits of being a beginner, by the way, is you get to ask all these questions with impunity. Right? Like it's just, Nobody's going to be, oh, I can't believe you asked that. And in fact, even when you're much more advanced, nobody really thinks, I can't believe you asked that, right? It's very rare for, for that to happen. So I encourage people to be more vocal when they have any kind of confusion point. And that's a really healthy, that's a sign of a very healthy engineering environment, in my opinion. All right. So I guess we'll, we'll loop back to um, some more about the podcast. But on that note, so you are currently engineering manager at which company? I don't want to get the name wrong. <laughs> I'm at PBS now. Actually. Okay, cool. Um, engineering manager or something else? It's technically director of engineering, but um, for, for practical kind of uh, uh, job responsibility purposes, it looks like an engineering manager role. Okay, cool. So that was going to be my question. So just so that I get it straight. So director of engineering right now at PBS, what does that job... So I'll ask, I'll ask from my perspective, right? Because you said that... I mean, you didn't, but I'm going to take it as you said, there's no wrong questions. So <laughs> there's no wrong, but that's right. <laughs> right, right, right. So, so I've, I've worked with a bunch of different companies, like big startups, corporates, all that kind of stuff. Right. And to your point earlier, you know, whoever gets in first gets one of the C roles. So, you know, I've worked with CTOs and I've worked with, you know, lead developers and all these different hierarchies, right? What does director of engineering, what is your role and kind of what does your day to day look like? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so I'll answer this kind of abstractly and then I'll answer it directly abstractly the director of engineering role would be responsible for uh, both kind of the people management there's going to be direct reports to that particular role but then also uh, uh, some of the interactions between your team and other teams right so if there's coordination that needs to happen if there's clarification if there is any kind of support for kind of gelling one team to another, as well as kind of communication upwards, right? Communicating with higher level uh, organizational people who might have goals that you need to pass through to your team or that you need to, you know, you, you kind of are a protector role. So any incoming requests, you might redirect those so that your team can focus on things that are higher priority. Um, there's a lot of those kinds of imperative things that a director of engineering might do. Those are all very reactive things, which is pretty typical of a, of a manager role. A lot of directors of engineering, for what it's worth, are also still very connected to the code itself, right? So you, you may, and I do, get involved in code review, especially, right? It's less often that a director is going to be doing direct contribution to the code base, but it certainly is not unheard of, right? I've, I've, I've submitted my own PRs to this code base. So, um, but, but your imperative is to enable the team, not to, not to be a contributor, but to enable the contributors. 
my role at PBS, I've also been able to kind of take another step beyond that and zoom out and look at, okay, what are some longer term organizational things that we can think about together, right? Uh, that we can improve on. Can we improve on remote work, how we do remote work uh, at, at a, at a old, I say old, a longstanding company. Very few startups have been around for 50 years, right? So BBS is, is, is unique in this particular regard. And also looking at things like, uh, uh, you know, how can we make a team that previously was all in the office together and suddenly is distributed because of the global pandemic? How do we respond to that? How can we, you know, fix, fix some of the problems that might arise from that? So, you know, the director role is intended to kind of take that, that wide view and look at the business problems and translate them into what do we do about it? At the lowest level, how can we, you know, what, how should we act in response to the problems that we're facing at a high level? That kind of makes sense to me. So uh, I guess a quick question is how, how I think I understand, but I guess for my, for my own clarity, how does director of engineering, would that be different from say a CTO role at a startup? Yeah, it's a good question because these titles, there's no standardization. No, I mean, I feel like they're all made up, right? Yeah, they are. And and it's interesting because some organizations, the director roles are, you know, very, very high level. Um, sometimes you have multiple tiers at PBS. We have multiple tiers of directors. So, you know, it, it just depends. It depends on the company. A CTO level role is going to be much more kind of abstracted away from those problems. Like a CTO in a large company, a CTO is probably not doing code reviews, right? Uh, but at both of the startups that I was at before, the CTOs were writing code, <laughs> not just even reviewing it, but they were very involved. They were doing architecture and that kind of thing. So uh, it's not unusual. And in fact, it's probably par for the course that the CTOs, uh, in, in many startups, the CTOs wrote a good portion of the code base. So to your point, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's unreasonable to expect that that every company you know, if you are a director here, then you're going to be exactly the same thing here. Very unlikely, right? Um, and I think you, it really comes down to breaking down those roles. We have these titles because we want something that is a shortcut, right? The title is like a heuristic. We say senior engineer. Well, what does that mean? How long does it take to become a senior engineer? Uh, I know people who are senior engineers and they're in their early 20s. And how does that happen, right? Because in, in other, and, and I think the reason this is so confusing, by the way, I, I know I'm going on a tangent about this, but it's, it's really interesting to me. Uh, part of the reason this is so confusing or can be so confusing is because there are other, I guess, practices, professions where titles are much more standardized. As an example, I, I think I mentioned that I have my pilot's license. If you're an airline pilot, you have very specific milestones to hit to reach different, you know, captain levels and that kind of thing, right? The same thing is true if you are an accountant, right? You can be an associate and then you can be kind of a staff or whatever their, their different tiers are. And it's standardized. Um, this is true in the profession of law. You, you can't be a lawyer unless you pass the bar, right? There's nothing like that for engineers. The closest thing we have is like AWS certification or something, right? But even that is is basically not not to put it down, but essentially it's a piece of paper, right? Because whatever someone who's AWS certified, somebody else knows the exact same stuff and they learned it from YouTube. Exactly, exactly. So there's 
you know, there's no organizational, there's no entity out there that's saying, all right, you're, you are now a good developer. Like that's, and so that actually contributes to a lot of insecurity for engineers. And, and it makes people feel like they're never going to be good enough because how do you know? Who's telling you? And we're so used to, you know, growing up in an educational system where we're always given feedback about our performance. We're so used to knowing, am I an A student or a B student or a C student? Well, I don't know. Um, so, and this is a really big part of the job of being a, a manager, by the way, is to provide that feedback and say, yes, you're actually doing a great job, right? Like you may feel like you're not, but you really are. Or on the flip side, you know, providing reasonable critical feedback. Hey, you're, you're doing a good job, but there's some areas where you can improve and we're here to help you. So Yes, I think to, to answer your question, I don't know that there is any difference between the roles, right? It just comes down to where you are and what your company does. Okay, all right. And I, I also find the title thing super interesting because I, I've said this to a few people, but I feel like development is one of the very few meritocracies where you get position based on whether you're good enough to be at that position or not. And the naming doesn't really like mean anything because, you know, really as a developer, you have junior, you have senior, and then after that, you're lead or CTO or something. But what's like a junior and a senior, they could be, I've worked with seniors that are juniors and like, likewise the other way around. So it's not, it's not a real thing. So I, I find that super interesting because it's not, yes, like you said, it's not like, there's so many other things where it's standardized, but you mentioned, so talking about remote working, cause I, so I saw that you had written an article that I think was, um, companies that embrace remote working are anti-fragile. I don't know if that's the, that's the quote of the title, but that was the gist of it. So could you expand? So I have two questions, um, which is one about that. And then secondly, interested kind of, especially in like your, the seniority of your role, it's saying seniority of your role after we just talked about, you know, how, how meaningful or not that is. <laughs> <laughs> the relative seniority, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There you go. Um, so with that, like how has COVID kind of changed or affected or influenced your thinking on that whole like remote working process? Yeah. Um, I would say initially, well, so let's, let's lay out real quick what anti-fragile is. And it's not something that I came up with to be clear. Um, anti-fragility is, is the concept that things are not only are they resistant to stress, but they're actually made better by stress, right? They improve as a result of stress. This concept comes from Nassim Taleb. Nassim wrote a book by the same name. He also wrote a bunch of other, but his, his writing is kind of difficult actually to read. Um, it requires a lot of cultural context to really understand everything, but he, he wrote Black Swan as well. Was that him? He did. Yes. Yeah. And so he's got all these, it, basically it's, it's an economic concept, right? That, uh, in Black Swan is kind of a similar, you know, we'll, we'll talk about both of those for a second here. A black swan event would be something that is um, totally unexpected, that statistically is unpredictable, right? Uh, an example of this is um, an earthquake that is the largest earthquake in history. Okay, now let's imagine that if you prepared for the largest in history up to that point, let's say that you prepared your structure to deal with a I don't know the magnitude numbers because I don't live in an earthquake area, but let's say with a five, right? And everything is prepared for a five because that's what history told you was the maximum. So we're prepared for the maximum. Well, what happens when that maximum is broken? It's a seven. Well, everything you prepared for a five, it doesn't matter anymore, right? And so those, those, um, those black swan events and COVID would be a black swan event. It's something that 
was relatively difficult to predict, right? It's not out of, you know, we have had things in history uh, that were similar, but nobody could easily say, oh, it's going to happen this year, right? It's also not something you would ever consider that you would need to prepare for. Right. In that in that sense either. Yeah, at least not specifically, right? You wouldn't go and create a... a you would hope to be relatively well set up that if for whatever reason, you know, you can't go into the office today, people can still do work. But right. to, to be like, well, people have to stay, people have to stay at home for six months and they can't even come in to pick up a laptop or something is yeah. not an event that you'd prepare for. Right? And that is kind of where we get into the idea of anti-fragility, right? Because in an anti-fragile system, the black swan events you prepare for as a class of events, not as a specific thing. So you can't really, you're not going to go and uh, you know, in advance, try to spend a bunch of time and energy and resources preparing a COVID specific vaccine before COVID spreads, right? That doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, now, though, we can prepare things like flu vaccines in advance. Uh, and that's exactly what, what, uh, the medical community does. I'm speaking a little bit out of my, out of my depth on vaccines now, but they essentially, they look at, you know, what is the progression of the flu and then they try to predict what it's going to be this year. And, uh, and that's the vaccine year, the f- they prepare for, right? Exactly. And, and the flu vaccine is, is, has different levels of efficacy each year as a result. Sometimes they get it right. Sometimes they don't. So when we think about anti-fragile systems, what we're looking for is what is a way we can set this up that structurally improves, right? Uh, improves whenever we are stressed. And my charge in that article that you mentioned is remote teams are improved by uh, stressful situations like COVID because they uh, they rise above the rest when these things happen, right? Not only are you prepared for it, but your workers are able to do more than the average worker when those stressful events occur because you know, in the normal times, you might uh, already have some advantages, like, for example, remote companies can hire anybody in the world if they're truly fully distributed. So hiring becomes a, a strength rather than limiting your pool to a geographic location for no particular reason. But when you start talking about, okay, what is a stressful event like COVID? Well, that changes the picture from, oh, we can hire to we can get everything that we normally get done, done. Nothing has changed. There's very little that changes. So you make a good point, though, that when you have companies that treat remote, I'm really passionate about remote, by the way. When you have companies that treat remote work as an extension off of their primary office or something like that, right, where they have a home base and all of the laptops are there and you have to go and pick up your laptop and whatever, that still creates this bottleneck. Uh, if you can't distribute your systems entirely, then you might be resistant, but you're not anti-fragile, right? Does that make sense? And, and totally, yeah. Taleb talks about, specifically, he talks about having resistance or being able to bounce back quickly from stress versus being improved by it. Uh, an, another example of an anti-fragile system for what it's worth is our bones, human bones. <laughs> when you stress your bones out, they get stronger, right? It's, it's very simple uh, uh, how, it, how it works mechanically, but how can we create organizational structures that do the same kind of growth? 
under stress. And that's the goal. Okay. That's a really interesting way to look at it. So I guess being so enthusiastic about remote working, one of the things that I was going to talk about, which I think we've kind of covered and kind of, I feel like we don't have to, but on your website, you mentioned that your values, and I know one of the things that you're big on and you mentioned in your job as well is kind of the long-term thinking, right? So COVID has happened and some companies, so the company that I've been contracting for were all remote. Well, they had an office, but all the developers were remote. So for me, no change for their business goals, development wise, no change, it's just business as usual, right? And and I guess in a sense that kind of makes them, I don't know if it would be anti-fragile, but they definitely benefit when all of their competition suddenly has this issue where people can't work and stuff like that, right? So it might not be stress makes them better, but it gave them an advantage. So with all of this having happened, how could an organization or can an organization be anti-fragile when it comes to remote working without being 100% distributed, no office, just everybody's on a laptop somewhere in the world? I don't know that I can answer that, at least not authoritatively. Possibly is is probably the best answer I can give. I'm not going to say no, but I can't say absolutely, right? Because the, I guess the premise of the question is, can we still be anti-fragile if we're not able to distribute our company entirely? Uh, if, if we have to still have some kind of localization. And I think, I think the answer is yes, because I don't think we should view any of these things as, as kind of dogmatic rules, right? I don't think distribution in and of itself creates anti-fragility. I think you have to think more principled rather than tactics, right? So if, if we think about tactics, you know, g- distributing your team around the country is a tactic. Principles are enabling, uh, let's, let's try to think of a principle of, of what that enables, right? A remote working environment enables us to work in a way that is safe and comfortable for all of our team members. Okay, can you do that without going remote? If the answer is yes, then you get that same benefit. The result is really what you're after. And the tactic to get there is neither here nor there. Now, that's not to say that there aren't other things to consider, like, for example, being able to travel easily or uh, move out of a high-risk zone to a low-risk zone. That mobility is another is, is another factor. Another thing that I think is really critical that a lot of people miss about remote work is that remote work is not just doing the same thing you did at the office, but at home. Right. That's, that's kind of what we intuitively believe is that we can take the office environment and just move our cubicle to our house and, and continue as if nothing had changed. Remote work changes our entire social structure around work. Right. We don't have looking over each other's shoulders anymore. We can't read facial expressions through the computer as easily as we can in person. Everything is compressed. And all of the cues that we otherwise would get in person, we no longer get. We're not designed for that, right? Or we, we didn't evolve for that. Uh, whatever your belief is about, you know, how we came to be what we are as humans, we're not built for remote communication. This is something that we have to intentionally address. And the companies that are doing this right are going to have a drastically different culture than the companies that do it wrong. Uh, and so, I mean, I'd love to talk about that um, a little bit more about what, do, you know, what does it mean to do remote right? And what is it that we're not wired for? 
um, you know, what are our restrictions when it comes to to remote work? Because I think that's really critical. All right. So I guess that is an interesting question, though, is what does it mean for you to do remote what to do remote? Right. And, and so so for me, for example, I can't speak from a like a, an authoritative perspective on the business, but as a developer, for a company to do remote right by me is, you know, have certain hours where I'm expected that I need to be available and the rest of the time, tell me what you want me to do. And I will do it when I work at my best and be judged by, do I give you the product or whatever it is that I'm building? And that's it. And not what I've had in the past, which is, you know, we want to make sure that you're online all the time. And, you know, how comes you didn't submit a PR for the last two days? Or, you know, how comes you submitted 10 PRs on Friday and all that kind of stuff. So for, for you, what does doing remote work well look like? Everything that we talk about when we talk about remote comes back to trust. Everything you just talked about is about trust. At its core level, you know, at questioning how many PRs or when somebody's working, that's about trust. And do I trust that this person is doing all that they can? And do I have confidence, which is a type of trust, right? That they're going to be able to do a sufficient job of what I, what I've asked them to do? Or are the results going to be there? And in remote work, trust is harder to develop. And all of my kind of theory around remote work is based specifically on finding ways to build trust. There's so many restrictions that we have to face that we're, like I said, not wired for. Uh, biologically speaking, our brains are not built to try to imagine what other people who uh, are miles away, sometimes thousands of miles away, what they're thinking and feeling uh, without seeing them, without being in, in contact with them. This is not usual. This is not normal for our brains. And so to do remote right and, and kind of getting back to your question, you know, it's a, it's a good point, right? Setting clear expectations that helps build trust, right? You can trust that the expectations that are set on you are real and they can trust you when you meet those expectations. It's a very simple kind of give and take system, right? Similarly, uh, I think there's, there's two sides to that coin. One is, you know, every organization is different. So trying to say, oh, you absolutely should have three core hours every day and there's no exceptions. You know, that's, that's not a reasonable imperative for everybody. It would make sense for some companies, right? But clarity as a principle is probably a good imperative for everyone, having clarity amongst your team. But building trust in a remote environment, you know, it really comes down to understanding what are we wired for, right? What is, what is our brain doing <laughs> that's different at home that was, than it was doing at the office? And a, a good example of this is, oh, we've all done this, right? You get a text message that says, K, right? It's not even okay. It's just, yep, just allow. okay. What does that mean? Oh, it can mean a hundred things. It really could. But what does our brain tell us that it means? Most of the time, because we have these built-in biases, particularly a negativity bias, our brain tells us that K is something bad right? Socially, it's negative. Now, why does our brain do this? And and by the way, you can easily break this down and say, well, there's a hundred other possibilities. It's just as likely to be not bad as it is bad. So why do we, why do we lean towards the bad? And the simple answer is so we can prepare for the bad. 
Our brains are wired for protection. If you think back to, and to be clear, our brains are, are very similar to what they were 40,000 years ago. We haven't really, our brain hasn't changed very much, but our society and our culture has changed drastically and our brains have not kept up. And so what we end up with is uh, a brain that is just trying to understand how to operate in this weird environment. It's wired for protection. And so when anything happens, the first thing we jump to is, what if it's bad? Because I need to prepare for the bad. Maybe it's a tiger that's hiding behind that bush. It's probably just a cat, but maybe it's a tiger and I need to be afraid of that, right? And the same is true when we receive a text message that says K, right? We want to preserve our social relationships and building trust when we have this swirling uh, kind of cocktail of uh, negativity bias mixed with a very compressed, low bandwidth interaction uh, between me and another person, we end up thinking everybody hates us <laughs> or, or everybody thinks we're doing something wrong. And nobody trusts us, right? And so we have to be really intentional about building trust for remote to work well. So how do you do that is, is kind of the, the next obvious question. But I think that, you know, that's the fundamental, right? Is building trust is the critical key component of good remote work. So the next obvious question is how do you do that? But a question that I have because it just came to me now, is so do you think that the traditional way of working, so, you know, you're in an office, let's just say you're in an office that's usually pretty traditional. Do you feel like that gives people a false sense of trust based on the fact that it's hard to build trust remotely? And if you have that situation where, you know, you're remote and people think you're not working because they can't see you, but in your, you could be in an office and I've, I used to do this when I had a job that I hated, like before I became a developer where I'd be in the office the whole day and I did nothing. But if I had done that at home, I would have been fired. But because I was in the office, I feel I'm wondering now, do you feel like it builds this kind of full sense of trust where you're in the office? I can see you. So even though you might not be doing well with somebody who's at home, it gives me this false pretense that I can trust you more. It's a really good question. <laughs> um, on the one hand, yes, right? It, because you think I'm doing something that I'm not, right? That's the fundam like the underlying thing. And it's the same thing as uh, you think I'm not working when you don't see me, even though I am. It's the same kind of mismatch um, or, or misperception. What's I think the, the second question in, in that is, well, how do you fix that? And in an, in an office environment, how do you fix the false sense of, of trust I think the answer is very similar to how you fix it in, in a remote environment. Instead of looking at the habits of the people who are working, look at what's happening as a result of it, right? If you're sitting there all day long, then you're not opening pull requests, right? Or, or you're not, you're not producing anything. And so for some people, their presence is just as important as anything they produce, right? Just showing face is actually an important thing. It's hard for my engineering brain to accept that, but sometimes that's true. But that's not, you know, usually it's not the case for engineers. And so if we say, okay, instead of judging based off of your hours logged, we're going to look at, are you actually doing work? <laughs> it seems, it seems really clear, right? How can we measure if you're actually doing work? Maybe it's, uh, we expect these issues to be cleared up. You're meeting your own self-measurement of what you think you can do. Uh, that's one way, right? But relationship really goes a long way here, 
right? If I, as a manager, have a good relationship with you as an engineer, then I can ask you, hey, what are you getting done? Like what, what's going on? What are, what are you working on? Are you stuck on anything? Not to, not to micromanage and understand exactly how many keystrokes you made today or lines of code you wrote. That's not the point. The point is I want to enable you to do work and you want to do good work, right? Hopefully. Um, and if not, that relationship will bring that out too. And so trust is always about relationship building and relationship building in a remote environment is harder. It's just harder, right? So in, and, and what you end up doing, <laughs> how you can sit, sit there and not do anything is before that you had built some kind of relational capital, right? Yes. Credit. Right. You, yeah. You had, uh, uh, gotten in with the people, uh, in the I company. I think if it had been from day one that you did no work, you would not get to day seven. Yeah, exactly. So. Exactly. You didn't build up any credit, right? And, and this, this concept is, is a very human concept. Trust is credit. It's belief in a, think about it this way. What exactly is trust? It's a belief that you will act in a particular way based on previous history, right? I'm, I'm trying to take what, what I know about you and extrapolate into a future that hasn't happened yet, right? We're all trying to predict the future together. And so if I trust you, I predict a good future. If I don't trust you, then one of two things happens. Either I predict an uncertain future, it could go good, could go bad, or I predict a bad future, right? And that's that's the fundamental issue. I gotcha. I think just just the word trust. I think saying that makes makes a lot of sense when it comes to remote working and how you can how you can do that well and build good relationships. Yeah, the relational part is underserved because we want to operationalize everything and measure everything and make it all objective and you know, uh, try to figure out exactly how much this developer is worth uh, as a line item. But the relationship is so much of what gives us the, the ability to work together. Yeah. All right. So, so I have just a couple of things left that I wanted to ask. So like, I, I find your thought process from the podcast and from talking to you now and stuff that I've heard you've done on interviews and stuff as well, really interesting and very kind of articulate. And so, so there's a few people, right? Which is that I, I've heard from social media or I found them from wherever. And, you know, I could listen to them on a podcast and they could be reading me a storybook and I would be like, this is amazing. Right. Cause the, like they're, they're really articulate and their voice sounds really good. And then also the things that the comments that they come out with just give me clarity on things. So my question is, are there any kind of, um, books or resources or thought leaders or anything like that that does that for you that you could recommend to people or really to me? Um, and then people that are listening. Absolutely. Um, so I'll start at a low level. Uh, there's a book called Behave by Robert Sapolsky. It's a very large book and I frankly haven't finished it, but the parts that I've read so far are incredible. Um, the premise of the book is to essentially break down our experience in the way that our brains react at a, at a biological level to explain our behavior. It's a very interesting book. A layer above that, uh, in terms of, uh, decision-making and that kind of thing is uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. It's something I've referenced, you know, probably a thousand times. Yeah, so it's on your website as well. I clicked on books and that was the only book that came up. Yes, yes. Uh, I have a standing offer uh, that anybody who promises they will read that book, uh, I'll, I'll buy it for them. I sound like I'm distorting, by the way. Let me check to make sure that my uh, my uh, uh, preamp isn't 
messing up. Hold on one second. Check. Does that sound better? Yeah, you're good. So I would say that book is is a is a fundamental book. Um, some other ones, you know, developer specific. I, I recently have been reading Accelerate. Um, it's a really good book. Has a lot of great data based. Uh, 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 I won't call them imperatives, but research around how do you make a, a a DevOps system and not just DevOps, but engineering organization that is truly lean and works well. Um, and then a fourth one, I'll give you two more. One's a podcast and one's a book. Ray Dalio has a book called Principles. Yes, I'm listening to that right now. It's very good. It's very opinionated, but it's also, it gets really to a fundamental, most of what he talks about is basically uh, how to perform experiments in your life, right? It's uh, it's very much about that kind of adaptive processing and, and looping back and not ending at a failure, but iterating and that kind of stuff is very good. Um, and then the, the last resource is Hidden Brain. Hidden Brain is a podcast that I, f- I feel like is, is one of my biggest sources of inspiration because it uncovers a lot of the kind of thinking and uh, economics and society all brought into a single podcast. It's really, really excellent. And it's put on by NPR. Yeah, I, I listened to the Hidden Brain podcast and um, I was going to say that's also one of the people where I think it's Shanker Vedantham. I don't know how to say his name. So sorry if, if he ever listens to this and I messed it up. <laughs> but um, he's also one of the people where he could just say anything and I'd be like, all right, yeah, that sounds super interesting. I actually, he has a book as well. I think it's called Hidden Brain, um, which I have, but I feel like I've, I've not finished that. But at some point, I'll get back to it. I, I didn't even know he had the book uh, until I saw that they, he just posted um, Hidden Brain is Hiring. And so I, I went and I read on their website uh, more about Shankar and I didn't even know he had a book. So I ordered it obviously right away. So, um, but I mean, there's a hundred other books I could probably list, but those are really the ones that have made an ongoing impact, uh, for me. All right. Well, I- I'm going to go through those and then when I'm done, I'll, I'll DM you for five more. So. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. So last question. And so you haven't listened to podcasts before. So the question, this is a question that I ask everybody and I find it super interesting because everyone's got different backgrounds and stuff. But the question is, what do you think separates an okay developer from a great developer? Great question. I'm thinking. Yeah, sure. Take your time. Okay, I have two things. Okay. And they reach pretty far into your whole career. This will be the case. I take it back. I have three. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the, f- the first thing is, in the words of, uh, I believe it was Gabriel Weinberg who said this, all problems are people problems. So this concept is that no matter what you're doing, whether you're solving a bug or doing a huge refactor on a code base or trying to lead a group of people, all of those problems are people problems at their core. And if you can wrap your brain around that simple fact, I think you have a much higher aptitude and growth potential in your career because you can start to approach things not tech first, but people first. If you can solve the people problem, then the tech follows. The tech is just implementation. Right. So, so one day the code that you write is going to look drastically different than, than it looks today. Or maybe, maybe, I don't know. This is seems way off, but maybe not. Maybe you won't write code. 
right? Maybe, maybe you'll work in a system that doesn't require that. So what happens then? Well, you still have people problems, right? So everything is a people problem. That's the first, I think, thing that separates great developers from the average. The second thing is recognizing that everything is dependent on context, right? So what is the right language to learn? It depends. There is uh, very rarely are there unequivocal 100% answers. Most of the answers have some kind of asterisk. Well, if you want to go into data science and if you want to, you know, work at a company that uses this language in X, Y, and Z, then maybe this answer makes sense. But I could be wrong, right? Every, everything is, is so contextual. And as an addition to that, kind of a sub uh, 2A, um, the idea that uh, there are all, that are, that there are ever only two options. So binary thinking, if you can reject binary thinking, right? Reject any situation where you say, oh, it's either this or that. That's a fault. That's very often is false. This is called false dichotomy. Most of the time, our decisions have many more possibilities than just two. And in fact, I encourage engineers, seek out the third option. Always, always try to find the the third option. Uh, Even if it's uh, just out of principle, always look for a third option. And then uh, the third and final thing is to recognize that the mindset of a beginner is the highest growth mindset you can have. So what this means is over time, we kind of naturally start to rely more and more on our instincts and our encoded knowledge. But what happens as a result of that is we end up ignoring new information and we're unable to adapt as easily. And so whatever you can do to constantly be reminding yourself how to become a beginner again, right? It's really good to be humbled by technology. It's, it's good to be humbled by other engineers. It's good to read a book in a subject that you've never learned before or go and learn something totally new just to keep that plasticity of thinking alive and to remind you, hey, look, you only have a very, very small fraction of a fraction of a fraction of information, right? Your brain just doesn't hold all of that. And so don't build up the illusion that you've become this super senior engineer and you never need to learn anything else, right? Always iterate as if you were a beginner. And that changes the way you'll approach the world altogether. And not just as an, as an engineer, but in your personal life as well. Okay. That is by far the best answer that I've had to this question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I agree with all those points. And, and the last point definitely makes sense. Um, and it kind of goes back to what you were saying about the remote working where it's like your brain, like the brain has shortcuts, right? So you get that K message and your brain shortcut is, well, it's probably bad. Well, not even it's probably bad, but it's safer to assume that it's bad than to assume that it's not. And I think it's, exactly. it's, the same, it's the same thing there where your brain has shortcuts. So you know how to do stuff that you might have forgotten how you know how to do it. But then, yeah, because I've had the same experience when you try and learn something new and I always try and learn it in a way that translates to something that I already know. And then you miss so much of the stuff that's around it because you just, it's like tunnel vision. Right. Yeah. Our tooling contributes to this problem. Just to, to comment on, on tooling as, as a problem rather than as a solution for engineers. When we develop experience with a tool, uh, we start to develop muscle memory around the tool. 
rather than around whatever the, the principles of the tool are. We usually, you know, it's the shape of the handle rather than um, the shape of the indention that it makes, right? And so what we end up doing is rejecting new tools because we're, we're so uh, well acquainted with our existing ones. Even if the new tool could potentially improve our, our capability, right? And so I guess the, the commentary is when we think about tooling, we can consider both the importance of that muscle memory, right? It, it, whatever tool you can be effective with, then choose that, you know? If you're constantly changing tools, you're never going to have that muscle memory at all. And it'd be like an athlete that switched sports every year, right? That doesn't, doesn't make sense. But also for people who are developing tools, what is the, the migration pathway? Who are the people that are coming to your tool, right? Is it someone who was previously using something else? What if you made it easier for them to naturally adopt your thing, right? It's, there's some muscle memory that they can carry over. There's some kind of, a good example of this, very simple example is uh, uh, NPM versus yarn. Yarn essentially supports, is very similarly, uh, kind of like almost interoperable with NPM, at least on the command line. And so you end up with this, this kind of easy transition over into this totally new tool that, that changes the way that changes your results, right? Uh, but you didn't really have to change a lot about what you did. And so there's, there's some more psychology and even biology, right? That, that goes into tooling that we should probably think about as engineers rather than just saying, Hey, this is a brand new thing. Go learn this whole new language and try to think, you know, about all of your stuff in a different way. Well, that's, that's hard for the average person. Maybe impossible to make that switch late career. For example, I've been doing Java for 20 years and you're telling me I have to learn uh, Ruby. I, like that's not going to happen. You know, there's also that, that huge psychological kind of resistance where your brain's telling you like, no, we don't want to do this again. We don't have to do this again. Just stick it out. And, you know, somebody's still hiring for Java. So just do that. Right. And it creates kind of a negative pushback against things that are totally valid tools. But because I'm going to create a safety moat around job, my Java world, you know, <laughs> I start to say, well, Ruby's bad. When actually, maybe it's not bad. It's just I don't want to, and I don't need to learn. A hundred percent, yeah. And that's it's, okay. It's, it's that old. It's that old thing where it's like it's not bad. It's just different. Yes, exactly. And then you have to decide if you want to embrace that or not. But it doesn't mean anything's good or bad. It goes back to number two. It's all in context, right? Ruby may be terrible in a given t- in a given context, and perfect in another. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It would be terrible to try and write mobile applications in Ruby, but you could write a bunch of other stuff in it really well. So that's right. That's right. Yeah. Although Ruby motion does exist. So that's, that's still is a thing, right? Another, another new thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. I'll I'll add that to my list of things that I'm going to have to Google after this episode. (laughs) Just another tool. Just another one. So last question, where would you like people to find you online? Where can I direct them? Where can they find the developer, the develop, I'm going to get it right at one point, the developer (laughs) T podcast and all that good stuff. Well, first I want them to subscribe to this podcast. Uh, Only once they've subscribed to this one, then go and look for developer T, but you can find developer T at spec.fm. But once again, subscribe to this one first, you know, this is fresh content new ideas. Uh, developer T has been around for a long time. So definitely go with the fresh content. That's going to be better probably. 
I would go with it's going to be different. And um, if you <laughs> yeah. subscribe, yeah, if you subscribe to one, subscribe to Developer Tea because there's 900 episodes, so that's 900 days of 20 minute breaks <laughs> that you can listen to stuff. Well, thank you. It's kind of weird actually talking to you and having a conversation because I'm used to you just kind of talking in my ear and me being like, <laughs> "Oh, that's interesting," and now I get to comment. So, well, it was a blast. I really appreciated it, and uh, probably one of my one of the most fun interviews that I've done, if not the most fun interview I've done. So, I appreciate your time too. Big thanks to today's guest, Jonathan Cutrell. You can find him on Twitter at jcutrell. You can find his awesome website at jonathancutrell.com. And you can find the Developer Tea Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. He's unlike any other developer podcast you might be subscribed to. I can guarantee you that. Finally, if you like the show, you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a rating or a review. You can do that either via Apple Podcasts or via podchaser.com. The link is in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so with a coffee donation at coffeeencodingpod.com slash donate. Caffeine is literally what fuels this podcast. If you'd like to connect with me, you can do so on Twitter at LowCarbRob. And if you'd like to connect with like-minded developers and other listeners, you can do so in our Slack community at coffeeencodingpod.com slash Slack. Thank you for listening. And I'll catch you on the next episode of the Coffee Encoding Podcast. Podcast.